Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly podcast and video series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the recent Liberal NDP parliamentary agreement, what it may mean for Canadian fiscal policy, including in the forthcoming federal budget, and the potential that it may trigger a market-oriented reaction as we saw in the 1970s and 1980s. David, thank you as always for joining me. Such a pleasure. The Liberal NDP parliamentary agreement, which was announced just over a week ago, envisions significant new public spending, including the creation of new health care entitlements such as pharmacare and dental care. The totality of these policies would be the largest expansion of the Canadian welfare state in something like a generation. What are we to make of this? Is it a sign, David, that the era of limited government is over? It's a sign that the era of limited government maybe never even got off the ground in the first place. As you say, this project is to be expensive. That happened before in the 1972-74 agreement, it wasn't quite as formal a pact as the the current one between the elder Trudeau and David Lewis, then the leader of the NDP. Canada then had a terrible problem in the latter half of the 1970s to get control of its spending again. Um, After he was returned with majority in 1974, the elder Trudeau again got religion on the need to have more stable finances. But the, the inflation genie was so escaped the bottle that as much as first Trudeau and then after him, Brian Mulroney tried to get control, slashing program spending, the cost of interest on the enormous and rising federal debt meant that the budget remained in deficit. As you spent less and less on things that people wanted, you spent more and more to pay the interest on the things they'd already bought. Um, and that may be a trouble that is ahead. Look, history never repeats itself. The details are always different. But there is this is an era of fast rising inflation, the Ukraine-Russia war makes things worse, and leaders need to be careful and responsible. One thing that is quite different from 1972 and 2022 is demographics. How much is Canada's aging population a check on contemporary progressive ambitions? Yes, that's a a very important point because one of the, it's, it's not just Canada's, it's, it's the world's. I mean, you have, you have a global population of savers. Uh, who are very anxious about inflation. Inflation was 
given the choice in the 70s, if you had a choice of, of cutbacks to try to control inflation or spend uh, to and accept inflation, it wasn't clear which was the right political answer, just from a crass vote-getting calculus. Uh, today, it's pretty clear that inflation is, is going to be quite unpopular. It's a big problem for um, President Biden in the United States. I think there's a lot of overconfidence on the part of some kinds of monetary and, and fiscal technocrats. They can manage things. But the lesson of the past half century on inflation is when you want more of it, as we did after the fiscal crisis or after the economic crisis of 2008, it's very hard to start. But once it gets going, it's very painful to stop. Well, there may be support for new and more generous government spending. What's notable is there doesn't seem to be accompanying public support for the higher taxes to pay for it. In fact, even the NDP has essentially abandoned the case for meaningful tax increases. What does that tell you? Does it show a revealed preference for smaller government? It tells us a little bit that the Canadian left is mentally colonized by their American counterparts. So in the United States, this debate has an answer, which is there has been this extraordinary concentration of wealth, enormous amounts of wealth, and people on the left in the United States aspire to tax that wealth in some way, and they want all kinds of plans to, to tax it. Canadian social reality looks very different. And yet I, I imagine that in the NDP, there are a lot of people who, even if they consciously know it's not quite true, Canada doesn't have billionaire upon billionaire to tax, that emotionally it doesn't feel true. They think there must be vast amounts of wealth that, that, that they can reach. And so it's an interesting paradox that the comparative egalitarianism of Canadian society as compared to uh, the United States makes it more difficult for the Canadian left to finance its projects in ways that aren't going to be painful to people whose votes the Canadian left hopes to get or keep. You mentioned the 1972-1974 run and its similarities to the present. That government agenda didn't just manifest itself in higher and greater spending. It also manifested itself in new restrictions on foreign investment. There's a lot of talk these days. We've spoken on previous episodes about the so-called end of globalization. How much political fecundity do you think there is these days in Canada, in the US and elsewhere for a similar agenda of restrictions and constraints on foreign investment and the openness of our economies to the world? Yeah. Well, I, I remember the mood of those years um, and Canadians felt very vulnerable and very helpless in the face of the United States. I, I think it's a much more self-confident country then. And Canadians, I think, are conscious of how much Canadian investment there is in the United States. I mean, you see it here in Washington they're, they're, where you have TD signs all over financial institutions. Now, the Americans don't know that the T in TD stands for Toronto, but Canadian companies are big players in the United States. And I think Canadians just generally have an attitude of this, this is a two-way trade that goes well. Certainly, Donald Trump's trade protectionism talk did not resonate well with Canadians. And yet, there may be some room for an, a new generation of economic nationalism, and it could even serve positive ends. I think one of the things I've been a longtime advocate for is that we need a NAFTA block price on carbon, and that this is a way to force environmental policies onto China and India that resist them, to get them to burn less coal. And maybe one of the ways you sell it is by emphasizing that first carbon tariffs do raise revenue. They raise revenue in ways they're not super progressive, but they do tax activities that we want to see less of, emission of carbon, and they can become powerful tools of trade policy to improve the behavior of other blocks like the Chinese and Indian bloc. One thing that's interesting about the Liberal NDP parliamentary agreement is as much as it's focused on ambitions with respect to the size and scope of government, it also reflects the modern progressive um, interest and focus on issues of culture 
and identity. How much in 2022 uh, has the progressive energy shifted from a focus on the welfare state to a focus on issues of gender, sexuality, culture, and identity? Well, this is actually one of the points of vulnerability in modern left-wing politics. I, I think there's a mean joke among certain kinds of progressives that the, the central progressive idea of the 2020s is there aren't enough female partners at Goldman Sachs. And it's true that a lot of modern progressivism is driven by aspirations to enter the very tippy top of society and to, um, by people who feel like I personally, for unfair reasons, am excluded from the very tippy top of society. Um, we want to break the highest glass ceiling of them all not the lower ones, the highest one for me. And that becomes something of a, of a barrier because it, it raises in the minds of a lot of people that progressive politics seek, uh, politics seek to represent. What's in this for me? I'm, I'm never going to be any kind of partner, male, female, whatever at Goldman Sachs. I'm just trying to hang on to a job here. What have you got to offer me? Now, the material benefits of dental care and pharmacare may be attractive to some. And the pharmacare... That may be an idea whose, whose time has come. And you could even imagine it as part of a generally more responsible issue to health policy where the story of health progress has been that we try to keep people out of hospitals. We try to keep people away from surgeons and that we, we try to substitute to the extent we can pharmaceutical interventions for other kinds of medical interventions. And if, if that's successful, then it's going to, it's, it isn't, it's not crazy that you would want to include the pharma piece within your larger healthcare policy umbrella, whatever that, that umbrella is. Same, same for dental. I mean, that people who have very bad teeth can get into health problems where a problem that starts as just a tooth then flows into the whole immune system and the whole lymphatic system and, and messes people up in ways that are very costly. So, so it, these are not completely out there notions within the context of a Canadian healthcare system, but you need fiscal discipline. I believe it was Tommy Douglas, most legendary of all NDP leaders, who said that the great enemy of progressive governance is always fiscal irresponsibility. And that was true in the 1940s, it's true now. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. That kind of comes back to the point, doesn't it, David, about the, the gap between the left spending ambitions on one hand and its willingness to make the case for broad-based tax increases in order to pay for such agenda. You mentioned this era between 72 and 74 of high spending, increasing kind of interventionist policies that had the a net effect of increasing the ambition and size of government in the short term. But I think there's a case that it arguably precipitated the eventual market reforms of the early to mid-90s, as you, as you outlined earlier. Is there a reason to think that the seeds of a free market revolution may be embedded in last week's liberal NDP parliamentary agreement? Well, again, history doesn't repeat. I wrote a history of the 1970s that touched on many of these themes. But I would say broadly that one of the things that we learned about the free market interventions of the 80s and 90s was that to the extent they dealt with the microeconomy, the regulation of firms, they were very powerful and very successful. 
to the extent that they dealt with the macro economy, that is uh, the behavior of governments to governments, the behavior of currencies, um, the, the jury was a little bit more out. So we're going to see whether this new era of progressivism tries to actually intervene more in the way that firms do their affairs. That's where you get the real reaction. I mean, you had this problem back in the early 1970s where left over from the Depression and World War II, there are all of these strange, strange rules uh, that really touch people's lives. And one that was very important to the Thatcher revolution was in order to prevent ammunition workers from being drunk for their afternoon shift, in World War I, the British government had passed a law requiring pubs to close between lunch and after dinner. And that was still on the books when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. And and she made a rule that said, look, there's a closing time. You can't, the pub can't be open to whatever, past one or two or whatever it is. Otherwise, you, the pub owner, you decide when you open. And that that was a, a powerful de- demonstration of, of real world freedom. One of the candidates for the conservative leadership is trying to make freedom a slogan for 2022. I don't know that people yet feel touched by government in that way, telling them that there are things you want to do, that government is in your way, in the way that in the 1970s, there were lots of things that you wanted to do where government was in the way. Well, let me pick up on that point. For those who disagree with the intellectual and political trends that we've been discussing, what would your advice be? How can those who prefer a more limited government start to rebuild their case with the Canadian public? My advice in parliamentary systems is it's a big mistake for politicians in opposition ever to have too much of an agenda at all. In parliamentary systems, the opposition wins when the government loses. Every government has a ticking clock of time. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but it's every government is on the way to its own defeat because of things that that government itself did. And the job of the wise opposition politician, and it's hard, is just to be ready. And part of being ready is not to be overcommitted to any particular answer because you never quite know how or why the government of the day is going to fail. It is going to fail. You can count on that. It may not fail during your turn as opposition leader. That's the tough part. It may be the next person, uh, but it's going, it's, it's going to fail. And then someone will pick up the pieces and build a new government that will restart the clock and go through the same process of getting ready to fail in its turn. So it is just, I think it's a big mistake for opposition parties in parliamentary systems to have too much to say. Um, that the job is to build your team, build your apparatus, make sure that you, your organization is ready, fight every day in parliament over the issue of the day, but don't have too many theories about what it is that is going to propel you ultimately into power because you don't know and can't know. Hmm. That's interesting political advice. How about at the more adjacent to politics in the world of think tanks and you know academics and so on? What do you think the most persuasive arguments may ultimately be for a kind of correction to a potential progressive overreach between now and in 2025? Well, inflation is always its its own teacher, but we have to, again, distinguish between we're not seeing the same kinds of progressive overreach as we did 50 years ago. These are it, it, Governments today do not aspire to tell firms what to do in the way that they once did. What they do want to do is spend a lot of money and not pay for it. And what they also have ambitions to do is to, as you said earlier, to re-engineer relations between the sexes, relations between groups. So that second point, that, that those produce the real flashpoints. And again, governments defeat themselves, partly because, look, the Demo- our modern liberals, they're a huge success. People intermarry, people have mixed families. And so if, if your strategy is to say, well, that we're going to treat these groups as antagonistic elements, 
and we're going to say, you know, French and English or white and non-white or men and women, that these are their enemies. We can build on one and deploy it against the other. You're going to find that the unity within the society is too strong. And that's one of the things that the, I think the Democrats discovered in the election of, of 2020, where they always thought there was this thing called a coalition of color that was going to defeat Donald Trump. And what they discovered is actually know that Latino people are, especially Latino men, are migrating out of the Democratic coalition and into the Republican coalition. And meanwhile, educated people of all races, including educated European immigrants, like the people we used to call whites, although that term is decreasingly helpful, they're, they're rotating into the Democratic Party. And, and the idea that you're going to turn groups into substitutes for classes in the Marxist typology I mean, Marxists, it didn't work well when you tried to separate workers from owners. That that never convinced anybody. It's even more unlikely to convince anybody when you try to say step-parents and stepchildren or parents and children, or that when you have two parents from two different groups, that their child must choose to belong to one group or the like be mama's group or papa's group. They may love both. They may love not they may love neither and be a third thing altogether. So I think these things are self are going to be self-defeating. But again, I, I was say do not my n number one message to opposition politicians is don't overcommit. You know, if anyone has ever shot skeet as, you know, that sport where they shoot, they fire the clay pigeon in the air and you have to, the, the whole art of it is aiming your rifle, not where the clay pigeon is, but where you think the clay pigeon is going to be. And then having the discipline to wait until the, you, the, the right time is there where your shot allows enough time to arrive at the point where the clay pigeon is going to be. And that's the art of the, of the opposition politician, to, to prepare the trajectories and the angles to be ready for the moment, never knowing when the moment will come and not firing too early and not being too rigid about the direction in which this, the, the rifle is pointed. That's a fascinating metaphor, David. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that the, the right target may not ultimately be issues of the size of government and public spending, but may actually be this uh, set of issues around identity and the extent to which the political left is committed to a set of propositions, which may seem a bit alien to how people live their lives and interact with neighbors and coworkers and, and so on. Yes, you may also find that right now, the issues of inflation, if we plunge into a deep global recession, which could happen because of the Ukraine-Russia war, the price of gas will come down. So if you've prepared everything on the high price of gas or the high price of food, that may not be true in 2024, 2025. People may be worried about jobs instead. On the other hand, it may be true that depending on, on the outcome of this war, that foreign policy issues come to the fore. If, if, if the war ends badly for Ukraine and well for Russia, we are going to be in a new era of threat. And those kinds of issues are going to matter a lot. On the other hand, if it ends well for Ukraine and badly for Russia, we're going to see, I think, a surge of self-confidence in the democratic world, that this global coalition that has been so acrimonious, of the global coalition of democracies, it, if it comes through, if it proves itself successful, things again may look kind of different and, and may, not in a way that is exactly a ballot issue, but it goes to that sense of, of confidence or not. It was important in the middle 1970s that Canadians didn't feel that great about Canada at the time. Um, it's been important to Canadian politics in the 2000s that Canadians felt very proud of Canada uh, in the years after 2010. Canada had the most successful recovery from the Great Recession of any of the advanced economies. So Canadi we, we, we're at the end of a period where Canadians felt really good about their country compared to others. I don't know what the mood is going to be in the 2020s, but you need to be prepared for a lot of alternatives. Just on that point, I've always, I've always had this theory, David, that one of the reasons that the conservative government was reelected with majority 
in 2011 was at least in part the sense of goodwill and optimism that was the result of the the Vancouver Olympics. So as you say, um, there are a lot of ways in which the public mood can be influenced and changed. Well, that can I say one more thing? About that? I, I had this joke at the time that the reason the conservatives did well in 2011 was their message was, you're welcome. And the reason they did badly in 2015 was their message was, again, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and, and people said, we said you're welcome once already. We're not saying it twice. Let's wrap up with, I think, a really key insight that you articulated earlier in our conversation that the narrative of the era of big government being over was probably overstated in the moment. How should people think about the role of government going forward? Has the experience of the pandemic, will it require some adjustments to what we think of the role of domestic or national governments in everything from supply chains to healthcare services to public R&D and so on. Are, are we, even for those who support a more limited conception of government, are people going to need to sort of reconcile themselves with a more active state than we, we might have had in the past? Well, yes and no. I, I think a lot of this, Omicron, I think, changed a lot of things. Because in the early part of the pandemic, the lesson was, yes, you needed to have an active state and you needed to have supply chains ready. In the later part of the, uh, of the pandemic, especially with Omicron, I think a lot of people had a feeling the government's panicked and overreached and said they knew things that they didn't. I think in in Canada specifically, the sense that governments overreacted to Omicron, that that even if they did a good job earlier, this next phase of the pandemic was not as dangerous as government made made it out to be. You didn't need to shut down businesses. And I think it left behind a mood of skepticism that about the state. And on, on the extremes, it led to a theory that the state was malign, which it wasn't. But I think at the center, it can leave... They don't always know as much as they indicate they know. And the propensity of civil services, especially, to reach for the choice um, of avoiding visible risks, obvious risks at the expense of less visible risks and saying, well, if, you know, if we can, we're go- you know, that we can measure X number of people being sick versus Y number being sick, and there's no price too high to pay. Well, if you're the person driven into bankruptcy because People say they said there's no price too high to pay to have a very small increment of additional help. So I, I, in my opinion, my life was a price too high to pay. I, I maybe not in your opinion, but in my opinion. So uh, I think it's it's going to be a, a mixed message. And I think if in the policy community we need to be ready for a, a range of answers. We need to yes, we definitely need to integrate pandemic planning into disaster planning. Yes, we need to think about supply chains and readiness and, and acquiring and maintaining stockpiles of, of various kinds of equipment. But we also need to be a little bit more humble about how much we know. And, and finally, one more thing, politicians have to accept, never defer to your scientific advisors. They, can, they, they are advisors. They offer you options. They, they give you advice, but the decision is yours. And the idea uh, and the idea of shoving the science advisor to the microphone to tell people what's what, scientists are not in the business of deciding trade-offs. Politicians are. Maybe this is a place to stop. I mean, I spent a lot of time in my life in the company of politicians, and a lot of people don't respect them, and I really do. But to, if, if you res- to respect them, you have to understand what they do for a living. What politicians are are experts in the gaining of public consent. And that public consent in a liberal, free society, you can't do anything without it. Um, you have to gain it. And there are a variety of techniques that you use to gain it. And one of the most important is bargainings and trade-offs, because not everybody wants the same thing, because there is no one public. There are lots of different publics. And so the people who are good at that, 
they have an incredibly important role. They often are good at it, by the way, by being blurry. Politicians are the classic yes and people, not either or, yes and, yes both. I'll, I'll have a little of everything from the buffet. And they can often be a little blurry about how exactly the buffet is going to be paid for, both in calories and in money. But that's their job, and it's an important job, and they can never, ever defer it. So there was, especially in the latter part of the COVID pandemic, too much of that deference. And that was a mistake, and that's a mistake that needs to be learned from. Well, as you say, David, that's a great way to finish up this conversation that no doubt will continue in the coming weeks and months as we see the manifestation of this parliamentary agreement between the Liberals and the Democrats. Thanks for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues. Um, We'll certainly have a lot to catch up on in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>